God's Word in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and concurred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in an absence of a crowd. Then the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God comes, I will not drink of it. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. If you had one last meal, what would you request? Inmates on death row are often given, though not always, a chance to order one last meal. Several have asked for belt-unbuckling meals, such as a whole bucket of KFC Original, 12 fried shrimp, supersized order of McDonald's fries, and a pound of strawberries to top it off. A good last meal. Others want nothing. One man ordered an olive with the pit still in it. Interestingly, every woman who's been sentenced to death requested their last meal with a green vegetable along with it. Got to be healthy all the way to the last moment. The last meal is something that people take time about, take time for and plan. What are they going to do? What are they going to have? Well, if you had one last meal, not assuming you're in prison, but just one last meal with your family, what would you have? What would you eat? What would you say? What would you want to talk about at this last meal? You know, throughout the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus is on a divine timetable. Everything he does, everywhere he goes, works out perfectly. And that's not just Jesus. We're told in Acts 17, 26, that God has determined our allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place. The fact that each of us is here in 2020 is not an accident. You didn't get here by chance. It's not some luck or fluke. God has controlled every single detail. So since Jesus controls all time and all history, why would he choose for this to be his last meal? Why did he pick Jerusalem? What is he trying to show us? 
Well, this morning we're going to try, we're going to see that Jesus is trying to show us that he is the Passover lamb that had been, been foretold about 1,500 years before, that all of that is pointing to him. If, a, if you have a bulletin, you can see on the back of it three main points, because in the first few verses, and then the last couple, we'll see that there's a need for Passover. And then in the middle, verses 7 through 13, there's a preparation that must happen for Passover. And lastly, in verses 14 through 20, there's a fulfillment of Passover, the fulfillment of Passover. But we need to remember where we are because from Luke 19, 28, we have been in Jesus' last week of his life. He entered Jerusalem with Shouts with cheers. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. The crowds were excited. But yet Jesus then got to Jerusalem and he wept. He wept because he knew what would happen to her because they would not turn. They would not recognize him as the king who had truly come. Then following this, the religious leaders were constantly trying to trap him with questions. And he answered their questions. And then he began to teach the crowds. He taught his disciples, don't get focused on the beauty of the temple. All that's going to go away. Instead, he drew their focus to an old widow who gave her last two coins. He then warned them of the future that's going to come if they don't trust him, if they don't turn to him. So they must always be vigilant and ready. Now, this chapter, if it were a movie, the scene would fade out and then the scene would come into focus, seeing rapid preparations, seeing a city bustling, getting everything ready for the feast of unleavened bread. The day of Passover. Well, what is the Feast of Unleavened Bread? What is the Passover? Well, David read for it, uh, read of it earlier for us in Exodus chapter 12. It's a memorial meal of God's actions. Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years, slaves, and God remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he raised up Moses to deliver them. And then he had used numerous plagues and signs to humiliate the gods of Egypt to show that he was God and to deliver them. And then he had this one final plague. He warned that this night, the firstborn of every house will be killed. And it's important to realize it's not just the firstborn in the house of Egypt. Even the firstborn in the house of everyone in Israel would die unless they sacrificed the lamb, and then took the blood and spread it over the doorpost of their house. That way when the angel of God came, it would see the blood and it would pass over the house. Now, Passover is one of those words where you can split it apart and the two words give you the meaning. Passover is because God passed over. You can't always do that. A pineapple is not an apple from a pine tree. If I just helped you learn something new, that one was for free. But Passover is when God passed over people's houses, not because of what they had done, but because of the lamb that had come. And yet this was something that they were to remember. At the end of Exodus 12 of what David read in verses 13 through 15, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land. And then he goes on to tell how this will be a memorial meal forever. (coughs) That they are to remember this year in and year out. So should we still be observing this? Yes, but we'll get to that later. But part of the remembrance as you go through Exodus 12 is there to have this day of 
un- seven days of unleavened bread that would then culminate with this Passover. And that's why Luke is mentioning it here. So what's going on is Jesus and his disciples are gathering for something that has been going on year in and year out for 1,500 years, where they remember that God killed the firstborn or he took the blood of the lamb. One of those would happen. However, now this feast of unleavened bread takes a new twist, for the camera fades from the preparations and it zooms in, perhaps on a room with the religious leaders whispering and talking. How can we get Jesus? How can we get rid of him? We're afraid of the people. They're starting to like him too much. The power may go from us. What are we going to do? And then perhaps it was during that meeting they hear, who's at the door? And they open it. It's Judas. We know him. He's one of Jesus' disciples. What are you doing here? What would you give me to betray Jesus? And they're, they're so glad. We're just talking. We don't know what to do. Yes. And then they work out. We'll give you 30 pieces of silver we learned from the other gospels. And so here, Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. But he says something interesting. He mentions that Satan entered into Jesus. Now, I don't believe he mentions this as though to exonerate Judas. As though Judas is not really guilty for what he did because Satan made him do it. Nor does he mention this to show that somehow... Satan got the upper hand, that Jesus was going along, but then Satan snuck into one of his disciples, and Jesus' plans were ruined. We see that because in verses 21 through 23, we learn more what Jesus thinks about this. In verse 21, we see he's not shocked at all. He even knows that one is at the table who's going to betray him. His plans are not derailed at all. So though though Jesus was saddened by Judas' betrayal, he was not shocked by it. And though Judas was being used by God, so though Judas was being used by Satan, God was actually in control of that all along. Jesus is very clear on this because in verse 22, he says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. This is God's plan. He is not taken by surprise. As well, this doesn't exonerate Judas, for Jesus says, woe to the man who does this. You aren't guilty if you're not in control of what you're doing. But Jesus is saying woe to him because Judas is choosing. So then why does Luke mention Satan entering in? Well, he says this because he wants us to realize what's going on on this night is not just one man and a group of religious people who disagree with Jesus. This is a cosmic battle that has been going on for millennia. A battle that we saw in the beginning of Luke when the devil came and tempted Jesus in the wilderness and he lost the skirmishes there, but then it tells us he was waiting for an opportune time. And so now Satan enters thinking, now I'll win the battle, I'll destroy Jesus. And yet Jesus is saying, no, this is my plan. He has not been caught off guard. And all of this is really driving us to realize why there is a need for Passover. Well, why is that? Well, it's because the Jews who were slaves in Egypt, the disciples sitting there at the meal with Jesus, and even all of us here have betrayed Jesus. Now, on one hand, we could clearly say, well, I never went to religious leaders and for money took the opportunity to betray my Lord. I would never do that. Judas did that. I didn't betray him. Except, let's think about the disciples. How many of them were willing to go with him to the cross? Not a single one. We're told in Mark's gospel that one even fled naked 
because they would not be kept with Jesus. And you might think, well, I would never do that. Except that's what Peter said. And Jesus warned him, and so we're warned, he who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. As with the other disciples, we may have never actively betrayed Jesus, but our actions might deny him. You know, God made us to be what? He made us to be his image on earth. When people see us, they should be seeing what God is like. Thus, every action we do should be faithfully representing God. And thus, whenever we impatiently respond when God would have been patient, we're denying God's character to those in front of us. Every time we laugh when God is saddened, we are lying about God. As a parent, you've probably told one of your children, Hey, would you go tell Susie it's time to fold the laundry? You send them off, and a few seconds later you hear, Susie, go do the laundry right now. I'm like, what? And you call them both back in, and you go, Sean, well, why did you talk to Susie that way? I didn't bark at her. I just said, tell her to come in. You know, Sean has lied about you as a parent. They've given this impression that you're just ordering, come on in here right now. And you don't like it because they're lying about you. Well, that's what we do when we act differently than God. We're lying about him to those around us. We've denied him. God sent us to reflect him and his agenda, and yet it gets so distorted in our agenda. And God says, not just to Judas, but he says to every one of us, woe to you. It would have been better if you had not been born. And yet, we're going to see there's hope. You know, the Passover was needed because every single person in Egypt, not just the firstborn, and not just the Egyptians, they deserved God's punishment because every single one was a sinner. You know, often we think of sin, we think of the things we do, but sin is much deeper than that. Sin is the active rebellion we have against God. It's the reason why none of us had to get down on the floor with our six-month-old and show them, this is how you ball your hands up into a fist. When they were a year and a half, we didn't have to teach them, this is how you scream, no! We didn't have to teach them, hey, when that other kid has it and you want it, you go over when no one else is looking and you snatch it. Well, why didn't we have to teach any kid this? Even when they've never had anyone else, so it couldn't have been society that taught them, because there's a power inside of us that says, I'm most important, I'm going to run my life, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to bring it to Frank Sinatra, don't worry. God says that is sin. Sin is the rebellion, the power inside of us. And that is what will be punished. It's the no one will tell me what to do that raises up in our hearts. And God says the consequences of wanting to live apart from him to wanting to rule our own life is death. And so Israel was under the sentence of death. Egypt was under the sentence of death. We are, and yet God sent this Passover that those who deserve it deserved it wouldn't receive it, but it would go on the blood of the Lamb. And so now Jesus and his disciples, the people of Israel, they've been celebrating God's passing over them in Egypt and bringing them from slavery for 1,500 years. And yet each year took a lot of effort. They had to prepare for this meal. You just didn't walk up one night and go, oh, we're having Passover tonight. You had to prepare for it. And we see that next in verses 7 through 13, the preparation for Passover. And here, Jesus calls two disciples, Peter and John, two well-known ones. And he says, 
go prepare the disciple. There's to go to prepare the Passover. And they go, where are we going to do this? And then he gives them this kind of strange message. He basically says, well, look, go to the city. And then when you get to the city, you'll see man with a water jar. And then just follow that guy. And whatever he enters, go in that house. And then you go to the master of the house and say, hey, the teacher wants to know where he's going to have his meal. And he'll tell you where it is. Now, those are some pretty strange instructions. What is going on? Well, we do know a couple things. For one, in their culture, it was not normally men who carried water jars. It was the women. So perhaps this was a clue. Perhaps Jesus had made a signal. Maybe not. Or perhaps Jesus is going through this secret way because who's trying to kill him? The religious leaders. He doesn't want them to know where he's going. Or perhaps Judas is looking for this time when Jesus is going to be alone. So Jesus doesn't say, go to Zachariah's house. He gives this encrypted message. We ultimately don't know, but I think what it's showing again is that Jesus is in control of all things. He knows who's going to be walking where. He knows where they're going to walk once they have that water pot. He knows that Jerusalem has swelled from 50,000 to 250,000. That They're going to be going, who's this? And yet down to every single little detail, he has it worked out, even to the location and timing of carrying water pots. And amazingly, we see in verse 13, all this happens. Everything happens, and then they would have gone and done all the things they need to do to prepare for the meal. They would have gotten the unleavened bread, they would have gotten the wine, the bitter herbs, the dried fruit, and ultimately they would have gone to the temple and gotten the sacrificed Passover lamb. And yet it's very important that they did it in Jerusalem. Well, why is that? Well, because in Deuteronomy 16, it says that the Israelites are to celebrate this in the city in which God has chosen, where he's put his name. Well, that is Jerusalem. And that is where Jesus is. And what is this showing us? It's showing us time and again that Jesus was the perfect man. He did everything right. He celebrated the Passover exactly as it should have been done. But notice something, that the disciples are able to make the preparations for this meal because Jesus had already done so. Jesus had a room, and Jesus had more than a room because Jesus had prepared this meal 1,500 years in advance. And think about your Thanksgiving meal. Thanksgiving meal does not just pop out of the oven. You got to get on the phone or you got to text and say, who's bringing the rolls? Who's bringing the cranberry sauce? Who's going to bring this and that? And you don't just get the turkey and throw it in. You got to let it defrost. It's got to be planned. You got to think through all of these things. Well, here, Jesus has been preparing for this meal, not just for a few days. For 1,500 years, he knew this day is going to come when I'm going to be with my disciples and I want them to know what this is going to be about. So I'm going to plan this Passover in Egypt so when I come, they will understand who I am and what I came to do. It will all be fulfilled in my, in the Lord's Supper. And yet it's not just the Israelites who needed to prepare. It wasn't just God who needed to prepare. We prepare for the Passover. We prepare for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 32 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, 
And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The Lord's table is serious business. Paul says we prepare by examining ourselves. And he even says, look, some people are sick because they are coming to the Lord's table with unrepentant sin. Now, is he saying that every time we get sick, that's because God's punishing us? Well, no, he's not saying that. Christ received all the punishment for sin. But God may use sickness to discipline us. Thus, we must be careful and serious to examine ourselves. Is there something in my life that I know God says, you need to stop, and yet I am unwilling to let go of it? Am I coming to eat and drink and remember God's forgiveness when I'm delighting in the very sin He's supposed to be forgiving? You know, friends, based off God's word, we have to be warned that you're only eating and drinking judgment on yourself if you do that. Is there a person that whenever you think of them, all you have is bitterness, vengeance on your mind? Is there a sin that you cling to in love? Well, then today you may need to forego the Lord's Supper. Make restitution. Seek forgiveness. Or even better, confess now. Even now, Jesus says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Notice he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because he justly took the punishment for our sin. He is the Passover lamb so that the sins aren't on us, but they're passed over and put on the lamb. And we see this next in our last point, verses 14 through 20, the fulfillment of the Passover, verse 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. It's a famous picture Leonardo da Vinci has painted of Jesus sitting with the disciples next to him. But it's not accurate. Jesus was not seated in a chair. He was reclining on his side with probably a pillow on his arm and the others all around them. And notice the strong language he uses in verses 15 and 16. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You know, to understand Jesus' words we have to realize that the Passover meal had become a very structured and organized event service. Every few years at our church, we'll have a Seder meal. And if you've ever been a part of one of those, you have all these connections in your mind between what went on then and what it means. You know, one major aspect of this meal is that four times throughout it, there's a cup that is drunk of wine or, if you're of other persuasions, fruit of the vine. Nevertheless, the four cups, they all symbolize the four promises that God made in Exodus chapter 6. The first promise is that he would bring them out of Egypt. The second promise is that he would deliver them from slavery. Third, to redeem them. And fourth, to take them as his people and be their God. In other words, the drinking of the cups and the meal looked back to what God did, but it also looked forward to what he did would do. And Jesus strongly wanted to eat this meal with them because it is the fulfillment of what God has done and what he's going to do. And so he says on one hand, I won't eat of it again, and yet he's eating of this one now because it's going to foreshadow what will 
come. And this even helps us because if you've read the other Gospels and then you read this one, you're a little confused because, wait, I thought he picked up the cup and then he passed the cup and then they do the bread and then he has the cup again. Which, well, the reason there's the various cups is because there's these four different cups that you would drink throughout the meal. We read of the first one in verse 17 when Jesus takes the cup and gives it to him and says, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. He's begun the meal. He's remembering it. What has happened? And this is showing us something very important. And we've seen this throughout, that Jesus knows what is coming. He knows his betrayal is there, but there's a future meal. He can talk about when I will drink this again, because he knows that this will not have the final word. Then in verse 19, as they ate, Jesus took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. In essence, Jesus is saying that unleavened bread you've been eating for 1,500 years, that was about me. Now to hear that if you've grown up in church, you go, yep, this is my body, broken in remembrance of me. And yet we miss what the disciples would have felt at that moment. Now imagine we were allowed to go to live performances, and we all went and watched Cinderella. And in one of the scenes when Cinderella's sisters are being especially cruel to her, Cinderella, the actress, paused walked to the front of the stage and said, you know, this is a lot like my life. I grew up in Burke Burnett, and my dad died, and then I had this horrible stepmom, and it's horrible. You would all look at her and go, what are you doing? You're just an actress. You, you, this play is not about you. Do your part. And if Jesus is not who he claims to be, he is doing the most sacrilegious thing that could ever be done. Because he's saying this whole play, it's about me. I'm not just a part in this play. I am the play. I'm what this is all about. And the disciples would have been like, what are you talking about? This is my body. This is about the lamb in Egypt. And yet Jesus is showing them all of that was pointing forward to this meal. What will happen when I die on the cross? Jesus is saying, look, that deliverance you had from Slavery in Egypt, that was a picture of the greater deliverance I'll bring from spiritual slavery over sin. And then after that, Jesus gives them the cup and he gives thanks. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is now the new covenant in my blood. And it appears this would have been the third cup in the meal. The cup that meant God redeems us. And Jesus is showing them, look, this cup that I drink, this is my blood that's going to be spilled. And that is how you will be redeemed. That is how you will be bought back. His blood is shed for his people. Now it's important to realize that in no way are Jesus' disciples thinking that he has turned this into his actual blood. If I took you up to my study and showed you a picture of my family and said, this is my family, you wouldn't turn around and go, did you know Pastor Jeremy trapped his family in a picture? They're stuck in his office. You'd be like, what? It's just an image. It's a picture. That's not the real thing. This is a picture. I have no spiritual, mystical rights. This is not going to change. It's a picture. It's a wonderful, beautiful picture, but it's still a picture. What's in my office is not my family. It's a picture of my family, but I can say, this is my family. It's showing who they are. And here we have this beautiful thing. We also know that because... The Jews had all these restrictions against eating blood. When Peter was told in Acts 10 to eat and drink three times, like, I can't do that. 
If he's that taken aback, there's no way he would have thought that Jesus was saying, you're now drinking my actual blood. As well, Jesus said, do this in remembrance, not re-sacrifice of me. But not only is it symbolizing the blood, but it's the new covenant in my blood. God wanted to communicate to us what our relationship is with him. And so he used this term covenants. A covenant is a promise between two parties or two people, two groups. And both of them make commitments. At weddings, we often say, I do covenant and swear. You know, our covenant with God is between unequals. He condescended to us. And God has made covenants throughout Scripture. He made a covenant with Abraham. We see the covenant with Moses and the people at Sinai. And each time they had this covenant, it was enacted by the shedding of blood. The blood symbolized the enacting of the covenant. And then God had promised, Jeremiah 31, I will give you a new covenant. Well, as you read through the Old Testament, you know that new covenant is going to have to be initiated by blood. It's going to have to come through the shedding of blood. And it's here that people often misunderstand Christianity. They misunderstand Jesus' message. I think Jesus came and he took the Old Testament and done with that. I got something new. No, Jesus didn't scrap the old. He fulfilled it. He says, all of this is pointing to me. So Jesus didn't remove the sacrificial system. Sometimes people say that. Oh, well, we no longer do sacrifices. No, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. He didn't remove the sacrifices. He fulfilled it. Jesus didn't say, priestly system, that's horrible, get rid of that. Pastors. No, Jesus is the priest, the final priest. So we don't need priests. I don't need to be a priest. Rather, Jesus was the high priest. So it was fulfilled in him. Now, this is new in the sense that it is so completely renovated, it is like new. And so, when we read in Exodus that this Passover meal should be celebrated on forever, we do. In a few minutes, when we have the supper, we are celebrating the Passover. We are remembering the lamb that was blessed, the lamb that had his blood shed. So that instead of the punishment being on us, his blood would be spread over the doorpost of our house and God would pass over us. Jesus' blood purchases the new covenant and all the promises with it. You know, this is something that shows the radical difference of Christianity to every other religious system. Now here, Christianity is good news. It's not advice on how to be good. The message of the Lord's Supper is, you couldn't do it. You needed someone else to come and cover you, to come in your place. You and every other religion, you need to go do stuff to appease God. You need to go to your religious events. You need to do these religious activities. In Christianity, it's Jesus, the Lamb, did it all for you. Hear the good news and believe. It's God saying, out of my deep, self-sacrificing love, I sent my Son for you. I love you. I will make you a new person. I'll forgive you. And just because you spread the blood of the Lamb over your doorpost, so to speak. And yet, like the Israelites in Egypt, with that first Passover, there is something we must respond to. We must take and eat, so to speak. You know, it wasn't just that the Israelites said, yep, I agree with what Moses said. That's right. They then had to go 
sacrifice the lamb. And they had to spread the blood over the doorpost. If we all went to Jason's Deli afterwards, that wouldn't mean you'd be fed. You actually have to take the food and put it in your mouth. Now, what did you have to do for the food? Well, nothing. They prepped it for you, but you have to actually eat it. You're coming to church knowing of Jesus, even agreeing that, yeah, Jesus died for sinners. That in and of itself does not save you. You must taste and eat. You must trust him personally. We, like the Israelites, express our faith by spreading the blood over the doorpost, realizing that Jesus didn't just die for sinners, some group of people out there. Jesus died for my sin. I trust him personally. That I see the guilt that I have over my past and I take the blood of the lamb and I spread it over my conscience and say, God, don't look at all the things that I've done. I know what they are. Look at the blood of the lamb. I'm spreading it over them because I am guilty and I need you to look over, pass over what I have done. Instead of wondering if God loves me, I look up at the doorpost and I go, I see his love. It was spread for me. Instead of going around and holding grudges with others, I look up and I go, if he could forgive me, if he could do that, then I'm not going to hold that grudge against others. You know, it's as we realize this message that we have life and vitality. You know, the Passover, we might say, the Lord's Supper, the cross, it's the heartbeat of Christianity. Just as the heart pumps nourishing blood through all of your organs, through all of your body parts, so the cross of Christ pumps life-giving spiritual blood to every single aspect of our life. It gives us hands to do, feet to act, hearts to forgive. And why? Well, as one song puts it, because we know I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted because you were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. It's all about looking away from ourselves and trusting in Christ. And that all of this really would have been quite meaningless, except for what Jesus says in here. And that is that he had a future meal that was still to come. That he says, look, there's going to be a time when I'm going to drink of the fruit of the vine again in the future, but not yet. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the great wedding supper of the Lamb. John saw a vision of this in Revelation 19 where he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus at this meal, he knows. I mean, he even says, the hand of one who's going to betray me dips in the cup with me. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to be condemned. He knows he's going to be crucified. But what gets him through? What got him through is he knew that there was another side of this dark night. He knew there's a future meal that's going to come. Thus, just as the Jews year by year looked back to the Passover, the great remembrance of deliverance, they also were looking forward to the deliverer who was going to come. So Jesus here is looking forward. And so do we. And thus, as we come to the Lord's Supper... There's a mix of emotions. There's a looking back and sorrow at our life. Even our life as Christians as we still sin. But there's joy because we can be forgiven. Now there's joy that this isn't the end. We're going to have a much 
greater meal than this. There's, this is just a small taste of the meal we will have with God at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's a meal that God hasn't just been preparing for 1,500 years. He's been preparing for all eternity, that He might gather His people and eat and drink with them, where I believe He'll say, how I have longed to have this meal with you. So we began by asking, if you could prepare your last meal, what would it be? Why did Jesus pick Jerusalem? Why did he pick this time? Well, Jesus picked this time and place not only a few days or weeks before, but rather Jesus picked this meal in Jerusalem because he wants them and us to know that he's the Lamb of God. He came so that he might take away all of our sins. You know, all of the Old Testament pointed to him. And the Passover meal was fulfilled only when the greater Lamb to come was sacrificed. And so Jesus calls Everyone, not just in that room, but in this room. Will you come, taste, and eat? Will you trust Him and His Word? Will you taste and see that He is good? Are you invited to something that is greater than any meal you ever have? You're invited to come eat and drink with God Himself. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a beautiful picture. But Lord, that picture points for a reality that your son, he died for us. He rose again. He conquered sin and death. And Lord, we know that we come sometimes with burdened consciences. We know what we've done. And so we look to the blood of the lamb that you, we beg that you would pass over us. We deserve your just punishment, but that you would look at the lamb in our place. And Lord, we trust in your son and what he did. And so as we take this bread and drink this cup, would you be honored and glorified in us and ultimately in the Lamb and what he did. It's in his name we pray. Amen.